Hello, and welcome to Sherlock, from Adler to Amberley. An attempt to analyse all 56 of the Sherlock Holmes short stories by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. In order. Starting with the first story, A Scandal in Bohemia, featuring the celebrated adventuress Irene Adler, and finishing with the final story of the casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Retired Cullerman, where Holmes and Watson accept the case from Mr Josiah Amberley. Hence, from Adler to Amberley. My name is Carl Kopak, and I'll be presenting this irregular series along with a special guest as we attempt to assess the value of each tale of the canon. A recap of Silver Blaze by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Silver Blaze is missing. This is bad news for many, many people because Silver Blaze is just about the most famous horse in the country. He's the favourite to win the Wessex Plate um, at Winchester and he's gone missing. But that's only half the story because Silver Blaze's trainer, John Straker, has been found dead just outside the King's Pylon stables in Devon with his head crushed. Holmes isn't called in immediately, he sits in Baker Street and he's mumbling and grumbling to himself. He's picking up the new editions of the newspapers and throwing them down and pretty much ignoring Watson before he finally says, it's no good, Watson, I'll have to go. And he's right, and Watson knows straight away um, what he's referring to because it's the biggest case in the country. In fact, Watson's quite surprised that he hadn't gone already. So they head to uh, Paddington and they go through the story. There's a lovely little scene um, where... Holmes says they're going well at 52 or to 53 miles per hour. Watson says, I've not been observing the quarter mile posts. And Watson and Holmes says, you don't have to. Uh, I deduced it from the telegraph poles. Um, as this is the first story from the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes, that must be such a lovely thing to read because, you know, he's back and he's being all clever. And I really like that. Uh, they arrive at King's Pylon Station in Devon um, later that day. And they're met by Colonel Ross, who is a somewhat curmudgeonly um, owner of Silver Blaze. You can't really blame him <laughs> because, you know, he's lost his horse as probably his biggest, um, his biggest asset. And um, his friend, John Straker, who he really likes, has been killed, you know, so he can't be all hearts and flowers. Um, but they're met by Inspector Gregory, who seems to be local, and um, Holmes likes him. Holmes likes him straight away, so he's very competent, um, which is quite rare for uh, for Holmes. So they get the uh, they get to, they take a Landau um, and go head back to um, Kings Pyland racing stables. He's told about the layout of, of the house and uh, the horses looked after. There's only four horses on this estate, you know, so it's quite a small affair. Um, but it's rub, uh, the the chief lad is a lad called Ned Hunter who looked with, um, with two other people looks after the horse. And they've got a maid called Edith. Gregory explains that a few days ago. Um, Edith came across uh, a man called Fitzroy Simpson who seems to be lost. Uh, Fitzroy Simpson is a tout, an agent, someone who basically makes money by getting inside information from uh, from such racing stables and you know making amounts of money on that, uh, on you know their successes and failures. She says that Simpson tried to bribe him with, with uh, so she could buy the the sort of like the nicest dress she could money could afford or something like that. 
Edith does the right thing and shouts for Ned and Ned goes to get the dog and they're to set on him. Um, the last thing they see about Fitzroy Simpson, because he completely disappears, is him putting his head through the window to look at the horse. Um, the window, it should be said, um, is too small to climb through. He's just looking at the horse. They go and tell John Straker um, later that night when he's in bed. Um, he tells his wife that he can't settle. He's really worried, worried about what was going on. You know, there's someone walking around at the horse. And uh, he's going to head off and look for it. Um, John Straker doesn't come home. Uh, so the next morning at 7 a.m., they go looking for him. Uh, and they go looking for Ned, too. And, but they can't wake Ned up. He's really heavily drugged. He's clearly taken something or accidentally taken something. And he's he's barely awake. But the horse is gone uh, under Ned's care. And then they go looking for um, Straker. And they find his body. His head's been crushed in a massive head wound. Um, Straker's holding a holding in his hand um, a small knife, which is bloody. So it looks like he's been he's tried to defend himself against an attack. So the horse is gone. Straker's dead, and they uh, arrest Fitzroy Simpson uh, upon finding him. Mostly because they've got a, a cravat where Straker was holding a, cra- a cravat which belonged to Simpson. So it's a really damning case. Um, Holmes just isn't convinced by it though, and. Um, he says later on that you know a, a good jury would would tear the, that to pieces because you know he he it doesn't say that he actually murdered him or um there's there's a million reasons why why Simpsons couldn't be there just because he was there doesn't mean he's the murderer um but they go and uh, look at um, Straker's body and go through the pockets um, and when they do that they find a few strange things they find um a sort of tailor's bill a dressmaker's bill um I think it's Madame Lazuria or something of Bond Street um. For 37 guineas, which is an incredible amount of money. The bill's actually made out to someone called William Derbyshire. And um, Holmes asks Mrs. Straker, do you know who that is? And no, not a clue. And then Holmes does something really strange. He says to her, you know, surely I met you wearing this dress. Well, you were wearing this dress in this garden party in Plymouth. She says, that wasn't me. Very weird. Uh, we find out why, obviously. Uh, they go to examine the murder site, um, and um, Holmes and Watson find uh, the well. Holmes finds a vest, a little match, which is buried in the in the mud. Uh, there's a nice little exchange where Gregory says to him, um, "How did you find that?" He said, "Oh, I was looking for him." <laughs> it's pretty much what he says. I knew it would be there somewhere. Gregory's already baffled by this part at this point, and so was I, to be honest. Holmes and Watson then peel off and they go um, looking for the tracks of the horse. They find a little sort of bowl-like indent in the earth where the horse can can be. And before they and they follow the tracks, they brought a horseshoe with them. And they see the tracks are eventually joined by somebody wearing square, square toe-capped boots, um, which leads them in one direction. Capleton, the rival racing stable, which seems to be very, very close nearby, and but then nothing else. It's a very strange situation they've got there. Anyway, Watson, um, Holmes and Watson... Go up to somebody uh, who works there and says, you know, can I speak to um, the owner, who's called Silas Brown? And I said, no, not really. You know, he doesn't like people like you Um, because he thinks he's a tout as well. But Brown turns up and basically basically tells them to, you know, get lost until Holmes whispers in his ear. Watson waits outside and when Holmes returns, um, Silas Brown is completely... In a completely different mood, he's petrified. He says, yes, don't worry, I will sort everything out for you, Mr. Holmes. We don't know what that is, of course, but we will do. So they go back to see Colonel Ross and Inspector Gregory. And um, by this point, Colonel Ross is just not not convinced by Sherlock at all because he hasn't really done anything. He's just asked lots of strange questions. And then Watson Holmes says, by the way, we're getting them in that train back. We're off now, bye. Um, But don't worry, your horse will run. This isn't convincing, but they, you know they they get back in the landau and head back to the station. As they pass some sheep, um, 
uh, who obviously live at uh, King's Pyland, um, he asked um, if there's anything been anything wrong with them of late, and uh, uh, somebody, well, I think I imagine it's Gregory says, uh, yeah, apparently one of them's gone lame. Oh, sorry, Lord Kenner Ross says one of them's gone lame recently, or a few of them have. Holmes is ecstatic at that news. He's really, really pleased with himself, and he says to Gregory, I, I commend that to your attention. Gregory's completely nonplussed, of course, and says, um, well, is there anything else you want to commend to my attention? And he said, yes, the curious incidents of the dog in the night time. The dog did nothing in the night time. That is the curious incidents. And we find out why that is. They go back to London, but they meet up at Winchester with Colonel Ross and Gregory there. And Colonel Ross is quite rightly furious. I said, you know, you, I, I, I've had to let my horse go through. I don't even know where my horse is. There's six horses in this race, and he's astonished to see that there are six horses all lined up to start, but none of them are Silver Blaze, because Silver Blaze has a very distinctive white um, flash on his body, and uh, I think it's a mottled off hoof or something. Um, you know, you can't miss it at all, and none of those are my horses. Holmes just, you know, keeps stum, uh, and they watch the race, and the, the horse who supposedly is Silver Blaze wins by an absolute mile, so they're all happy with that. Ross is completely nonplussed at the same time, though, and says, well, yes, but where's the horse? Which I think is a fair question, to be honest. Holmes says, they go and meet the horse, and uh, they get a bucket of spirits of wine, and um, they cle- he cleans the horse down, and, of course, he removes the paint and dye that Silas Brown has clearly put on it to disguise the horse, and the horse is Silver Blaze. They're all very happy with that, but Ross says, yes, but what about the who killed him? Who killed John Straker? And he says, well, what happened... Um, Straker has been leading a double life. Um, the bills of William Derbyshire, but men don't carry the bills of other men in their pockets. He's been leading a double life, he's heavily in debt, and he's clearly been betting against Silver Blaze. So the best thing he could do was somehow remove him from the race or through an injury that he himself could not be um, accused of. So he went out to talk, to, so he went, to, he drugged Ned. Uh, by putting powdered opium in um, his curried mutton, which was the meal of the night, because you can disguise the um, the, the, the you know the the opium um, in a curry dish. Um, Ned obviously passes out. He took the horse into the middle of the of a, a sort of a, a bowl shaped indentation um, uh, in in the moor, and he tried to nick him with a surgical knife, a cataract knife, it's called, at the back of its hamstring. Uh, the horse will be just seen as lame and nothing else, and no one could have detected that, no one could have blamed him, and the horse didn't win. And, of course, Streaker would have won. However, when he lit the match, which Holmes found, the horse kicked Straker in the head. The horse is the murderer. Now, let's go back to the um, the sheep and the dog. The sheep have gone lame because Straker had been practising upon them. And when he says the dog did nothing in the night, that was the curious incident, is because... When Straker led the horse out into the indentation and into onto the moor, the dog didn't bark because the dog knew who the murderer was. There was no stranger there. Whoever the murderer was, was known to the dog and known to the inhabitants of King's Pyland. And that is Silver Blaze. Our guest to discuss Silver Blaze is Mary Pagonis. Mary is the author of A Study in Scarlet Marquis, Sherlock Holmes and the Trials of Oscar Wilde as well as the six-book Fortune's Fool Equestrian series. After seeing a Basil Rathbone film one night at the age of 11, she insisted on purchasing a copy of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes the very next day, and she's been a fan ever since. Watching the Jeremy Brett adaptation when they first aired only intensified her obsession. Throughout her schooling at Wesleyan University and Harvard Divinity School, 
19th century literature, particularly Jane Austen, the Brontes, Dickens and Wilkie Collins, became an abiding interest. She also rides horses, which is quite handy for this story. She sees them as a 19th century form of transportation. Mary, thank you so much for joining us um, on Sherlock from Adler to Amberley. Um, we've just done the recap of the show and uh, we've also uh, had a sort of brief introduction to who you are and what you do. Um, you're perfect for this, absolutely perfect for this podcast because we've had a chat over email and um, you've been invited onto the show with horses. There's a horse in this one. And um, yes. uh, you know your way around the horse, shall we say? So, okay, why, why, why the interest in horses? How did that come about? Is that a New Jersey thing, or? Well, yeah, actually, New Jersey has um, been well known as um, one of the the horsier states in in the U.S. But I don't want to say the horsiest because then a lot of people from Kentucky and Maryland and Florida. I was going to say, yeah, sort of that sort of area. <laughs> will attack me, you know, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I do want to say, I mean, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a professional horsewoman. I'm just one of those, you know, women who, you know, ever since a young age has been fascinated by, you know, horses and, you know, and I don't own a horse, but I, you know, I love to ride and the times that I do ride every single week are just the, you know, it's what I look forward to, you know, each and every single day. Um, and I've written an, an equestrian fiction series and um, I yeah. follow the sport pretty obsessively so even though I'm not a professional rider it's like I'm you know I'm a very dedicated and enthusiast well well compared to John and I you, you really are I'm, I'm from a council estate in Liverpool John's from Swansea so the closest we can get to say is John and I have both seen horses <laughs> we are, we're aware that they exist and it and it and it ends there so um, I mean whereabouts in, in um, New Jersey are you? bearing in mind my knowledge of New Jersey is Newark Airport and the Sopranos <laughs> well, um, I guess I'm, New Jersey is a very small state, so yeah. um, I'm actually probably about an hour away from Newark Airport and, uh, you know, Sopranos fame. Okay, I'm trying to work out roughly where that is. Okay, I think I know where you roughly where you are as well. And I did not realise that was, actually, no, I tell a lie, I've been to um, Princeton. I had a meeting at Princeton once, so I've been on the Trenton train. So that, that's my entire knowledge of New Jersey. Please tell me well, that's New Jersey and I've not messed it up. It's a small state, so I mean, and and so I'm actually just very impressed that you've been through it at all, to be perfectly honest. But I'm not, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm not one of those people who's like, you know, we're not not one of those Americans who's like terribly offended if if you don't have a great sense of you know geography of you know my my home state. Because I I mean, I'm not from New York, I'm not from LA, I'm not from Chicago, so you know, I'm not from like the the, the big you know the the, the three. I guess big states. If you want to get the, the three big cities, if you want to go straight across the country, mm. uh, so I assume everyone assumes that you've got to be one from the other three, and the, the other forty-seven don't really count um, as such. Um, we've also mentioned, um, obviously, you're, you're perfect for for the horse talk in this, um, uh, and obviously, like like John and I, obviously, we come from a Jack the Ripper background, hence Rippercast, our hosts. Um, um, but your, your, your interest stretches to Victorian and beyond backwards as it goes to the Brontes and to, to Jane Austen as well. So why, why have you chosen a particular English um, interest in terms of writing Dickens and what have you? Well, I mean, I think, you know, and, and this actually probably goes to, to horses as well. I and mean, we, we can think of all sorts of logical reasons that we, you know, we were fascinated by what we, you know, you know, what we love, but, you know, it, it really just all traces back to when I was nine years old, um, I turned on PBS and Masterpiece Theater, um, and I saw ad an adaptation of 
The Woman in White, the great um, sensationalist novel by Wilkie Collins. And even at that young age, I was just captivated by, you know, the, the mystery and the atmosphere and the strange, strange characters. Um, and I think seeing it actually helped first. And I was able to, you know, read the book even at that, you know, young age. I read it even before I got interested in Doyle. Um, and then after seeing a couple of old Basil Rathbone movies on the on, on the television, I, you know, just, I had to, to read the short stories. I read them all through in an anthology um, in practically a night, um, and I've been hooked ever since. Um, and more, actually, just very recently, though, that's like my long, long past interest. Um, I read The Five, which is a, um, a, a wonderful biography of the five victims of Jack the Ripper. So yeah. my interest in, uh, in the era is, is constant and, and all abiding and, and certainly isn't confined to Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, I, I actually um, saw Hardy Rubenfeld um, talk to the Whitechapel Society. Um, uh, I don't, John, I don't think you were there, were you, John? I don't remember seeing you there. Anyway, um, yeah. So again, yeah, obviously, but with us, it's uh, it, it's it's primarily the Victorian uh, era too. And um, I, I don't know enough about Charles Dickens, uh, which is strange because I'm absolutely obsessed by London. And I watched um, something called Jules um, Guides on YouTube, which is very very good on London. And um, he went just he, the last video he did was literally right by my my office is in the video, and he said, "Oh, by the way, that's where um, that's where Dickens lived." Uh, as a child, right opposite my web, which of course I've walked past maybe two thousand times. Oh wow! Um, so, so you know, so it's always interesting to me when you know we, we, we I speak to people so far away, and um, I feel very sorry for them. Like you know, so John, for example, the other John who who hosts Rippercast has never been to Whitechapel, and yet he knows more about the roads that I can visit in half an hour. Well, I could I could have done um, before all this, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's always fascinating to me when someone so far away sort of just knows this the same area as I did, but doesn't get to see it. Though interesting enough, I don't think Doyle knew London very well when he started to write about Sherlock Holmes, from what I understand. I mean, I know that he like wrote A Study in Scarlet very much from, from memory and, you know, not necessarily, I mean, he wasn't sort of immersed in the in the, the physical environment that he was, yeah. was writing about. Yeah, there's, um, we, I did a show where, well, we, sorry, we both did a show about, uh, which story is that? The Man with the Twisted Lip with Trevor Bond where Holmes gives has given directions by John Clay about how to reach the Strand, and Trevor Bond and I sat down and worked out where the hell he was. We, we think he must be in 15 different places at the same time, just to get even close to where the, the Strand is from there. So the third right, fourth left or something from Farringdon Street. Absolutely. In, in a very similar way that um, in the first Robert Downey Jr. Um, Sherlock Holmes films, he comes out of Parliament and walks straight onto Tower Bridge. They're, they're a mile and a half apart. Easy, and it's it, and and the the world created by that film though is just so surreal and strange and you know steampunk. I mean, even probably if I lived in London, it wouldn't even turn it, it wouldn't even cause me to you know to to turn an eye because I mean things seem so you know elastic and you know uh, in in sort of like their own created reality. Yeah. Um. I I guess I'm very good at suspending disbelief that way. I mean, I know some people get very very upset if they see you know deviations from, you know, geographic fact and things like that. So I mean, like with with, with this story with Silver Blaze, I mean, I know some people get very upset about the racing details, but I'm 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 perfectly willing to suspend disbelief for for the moment, even though it's sort of fun to to go back and see what he gets wrong. Oh, oh believe me, where where we were coming to that. Oh, God. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Don't you worry about that. This is what I, again because my knowledge of horses is non-existent. 
But um, I, I read the story again last night and I read a couple of essays about uh, things he gets wrong in the story. And the fact that even uh, Sir Arthur even said, you know, I, I, I probably would have done that a, ben bet, a better or, you know, I've got no idea what I was talking about, but um, but it but it worked. Um, you've already told us uh, how you became a Sherlock fan. Um, this is one of the two big questions you open with. And I know the answer to this one as well, because this would be quite something if you were to, to surprise me. Did you like the story of Silver Blaze? It's one of my favorite stories. I think it probably it comes off very clear, comes off very clearly, and it was one of Doyle's favorites. And I think it's just a, just a fan favorite in general. Mm -hmm. It's I, I I read it again last night, and it's definitely in my top five. But I haven't read it for a while. Um, what I really like about the story is this: it's so rich. Every single tiny thing is important to it, and there's no. You know, Watson doesn't run off and talk about the beauty of a field or anything like that. It's action, 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 clue, denial, um, uh, that sort of thing. You're right, Sir Arthur ranked it as, as one of his best. Um, it's, for me, it's, first of all, it's it's the setting. And obviously he came back to the area for a hand of the Baskervilles. Um, but to, to leave London and travel to what is almost like a separate country in terms of, you know, there's no telegram offices or whatever. Well, there are telegram offices, but... Um, it seems to be like there's racing stable, racing stable, and then nothing for 40 miles in any direction. I think that really adds to it too. It's also got the man who has to be guilty but isn't, uh, and it's mm -hmm. got um, Holmes being rude to, um, to to someone from the upper echelons of, of, of the English class system. Um, what, what particularly appealed to you, to you overall? Well, I mean, just to go back to the landscape. I mean, I, the the utter bleakness that Doyle creates in the story is, you know, is quite stark. I mean, I don't know if it's even necessarily a fair portrayal of the way the Dartmoor was in the nineteenth century. You can't really always rely upon Doyle for, you know, a description of the way things are. But yes, I mean, just the idea of this place that's, you know, just utterly, you know, forsaken and misridden. And the only things, you know, for miles and miles are these two racing stables and um the uh, uh the moor where um the the pack of gypsies are, you know, packs of gypsies are, you know, yep you know, marauding around. And I, and I know, and I know, by the way, that gypsy is not a, a correct, you know, description of, of the Romani people, but, um, you know, this is Victorian literature and for, for what it's worth, I and mean, that was the, the, the term that was used back then to, you know, just, you know, to describe the community. Well, well I think if, if I was reading this, obviously the, this collection, this is the first one in memoirs came out, um, something like five months after Adventures, just because obviously he knew he was onto something uh, and just rushed them out as soon as he could. Um, I think if I was reading the story for the first time and I saw the word gypsy, I just think, well, it's not them. Exactly. They're, all, they're always the red herring, always. Speckled always. bands, upper <laughs> beaches. The gypsies you know, the... never do it. They never no. do it. They're always there, but they never do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the MacGuffin, as, um, as Hitchcock called it. Yeah, the, th the thing that isn't there. Um, uh, the atmosphere, I, th I think, really is strange. I, I also love the, I love the start. I, I, I'm a big fan of a huge opening for a story. And any story that's got Holmes mumbling to himself, furious, throwing newspapers around, ignoring Watson, is always going to be a good one. And, uh, and I like this one because he, he shows that he's fallible more than anything else. He's ex obviously, he thinks... They're going to find the horse and the murderer straight away, so he doesn't even bother going down there. And then he's checking the newspapers, and they still haven't done it. And then he's thinking, mm, it's a long way. It's a long way to Devon from London. Um, and I, I love that sort of start. 
I mean, I think actually, I mean, you'd think his delay is one of the reasons that there's a mystery at all. Because, I mean, again, I know it's hard for me to, to rate Holmes's powers, but I would think that if he had actually examined the freshly killed body of um, Mr. Straker, um, he might have a bit of a more of a clue as to how you know, the, the, the man met his death. I and mean, he's kind of relying upon police forensics after the fact, which, as we all know, aren't the greatest in this particular world. It, it is very similar in some ways to the Boscombe Valley mystery because it, 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 it's the same beginning in many ways because he's sitting on a train with Watson and he explains to Watson what's going on. And, and in Boscombe Valley mystery, he goes so far as to actually just read out the newspaper report yeah. as a sort of element of exposition. I said, right, this is it, and I'm not going to pretend we're talking. Just here it is. This is the story, and I'll bring the two lads in once you've, uh, you know, once everyone's caught up on the same page. But it, it is one of the most famous railway journeys as well. Um, John, I'm going to have to bring it up, I'm afraid. I know we try not to talk about the Deer Stalker, <laughs> but this is it. We're I think ready. it's acceptable here because it's actually a canonical source for the Deer Stalker. So, yeah. Is and uh, it, this and the Boscombe Valley mystery is uh, the, the only two times he, uh, although I think he, he wears a cloth cap, I think it's called in, in the um, uh, and Hand of the Baskervilles. But yes, everyone, this is author. If you want to see his authentic Sherlock, this is the one he is genuinely wearing it because he's off to the country. I, I'm at, I mean, I don't know how far your knowledge extends on this, but would, would that be a country where to the equestrian folk? Well, not for equestrian folk, but I mean, for hunting, it actually has very practical practical purpose. I mean, I don't hunt, but I mean, it's to keep your ears, you know, warm. I mean, if you're standing out in the middle of uh, a wet, disgusting field for hours upon end, waiting for, you know, some birds to come by so you can shoot them, you know, that's a, it's a way to, to keep warm. And I assume that even though Holmes is not a hunter, I mean, he's a, a tall, thin man, you know, he's probably a little bit sensitive to, to the chill since he's usually seen by the fire in Baker Street. So, I mean, it, it makes complete sense that he would wear, you know, a deer stalker when he's gallivanting about in the, the wet of the country and, you know, crawling around on the ground to look at footprints. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a way of looking at it because, of course, he's supposed to be really, really strong, exceptionally strong fingers, a boxer, a swordsman, um, but he just just sort of lie around smoking a lot. So. <laughs> What's really ironic, though, is that he's so associated with the deer stalker, but he's a man who hates the country. I mean, he has that famous passage in the, the Copper Beaches where, like, every time I see a tract of country, all I can think about is all the horrible murders that take place, you know, behind closed doors that no one knows about because we're in the forsaken country. Yeah. Um, and yet he's associated with a hat that represents, you know, country living. So I'm the politics cyclist as well. Yes, yes, the solitary cyclist too. Again, in the country, horrible things happening in the country. Mm. Despite the fact he gets attacked in central London twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things. Um, uh, just, just moving on to the story then. Uh, I love the fact, I, I love his, um, I really like the fact he likes Inspector Gregory. Just because I think it'd be so easy for, for Doyle to write, a, here is yet another imbecilic policeman. Mm-hmm. And he says, he, 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 I think he described him as competent, which, of course, for Holmes is a, a gushing love letter of a recommendation. Yes, yes this is one of the, the rare, competent um, you know, police officers and also rather a likable man. I mean, he's very respectful to Holmes. I mean, he's very, he's very fair-minded. And even when he disagrees with Holmes, I mean, he does so in a way that's not, you know, offensive or obnoxious. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he genuinely wants to help him. And I really like the bit where... Uh, where, where 
uh, Gregory gives a, a photo of, um, of John Straker and he says something like, uh, he said, oh, Gregory, you, you anticipate my every need or something like that. Yes. Says, oh, my God, this, this yes. is actually, he's actually a proper one. He knows what he's doing. And, you know, even the things that he puts down, they're not duckboards, are they? They'd be, they'd be called duckboards over here. They put like a little carpet so you so the scene isn't spoiled by policemen running all over it. I think it's just basically just a dig at Scotland, Scotland Yard because he isn't a Scotland Yarder. Um, I actually think that's, that's really good. And I, I like the meeting with Colonel Ross as well because I think I really like Colonel Ross just because he's trying to not be too bothered about his horse. Because obviously a man, a man is a man he knows and respects is dead. But the more the story goes on, he can't help himself. What's going on with my horse, please? I always wonder though if his his claim to you know be so concerned about John Jonathan Straker is a little bit overstated, though, to be perfectly honest. I mean, you know, he can't say that he doesn't care, but I mean, I always wonder how good relations between the two men really you know, really could be. I mean, especially given that Stryker behaves in, you know, such a horrible and offensive way to the man who, you know, he was, you know, who trusted him to take care of his horses. And his wife. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, he, he's not a good man at all. And uh, um, so I, I, I love that that trip to, um, uh, is it, I think they're on Landau. Uh, and they're talking about Capleton, which, which for some reason, is according to um, um, the annotated homes, is called Mapleton in some versions. I don't know why I thought would suddenly. Let's just change that to back to Capleton again. I don't quite understand that. Um, but the story itself has got, as I say, it's got everything in it, and it's got um, the ever helpful um, staff. Ned, Ned is a nice man. Edith is a nice woman. They do the right thing when um, the tout comes along, Fitzroy Simpson. Um, I've mentioned this on, I do a brief agenda, I should say, just to shine some magic light on what we do here. I do a very, very, very loose agenda. And I made them the point that um, uh, there was a footballer called Fitzroy Simpsons in the 90s. He played for uh, Manchester City. Uh, I, and really, I did not know yeah. that. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm tempted to put his picture up on Instagram and say, here he is. Here's the man who tried to steal Silver yes. Blaze. Or did he? Um, it just made me think, what's his parents thinking? Did they know? They must have known. They must have known. I will. I, I guess this was before Google, though. Maybe they didn't check. <laughs> I just find that really, really strange. Um, and also, John, I don't know if you know this as well. Because I, I mentioned Jules's um, uh, London Guide talk yesterday. He, uh, that I saw yesterday. And he's talking about the, the area of London in Tottenham Road called Fitzrovia. Do you know what Fitzroy means? Um, no, I can't say I do, actually. It's Son of the King. Because it's oh. French, it feels raw. Oh, okay. Oh, that makes sense. Because the man it's named after it was uh, the illegitimate child of one of the. I want to say Charles II. I don't know. Um, yeah, so the whole area is basically owned by the Fitzroy family. So yeah, it's, he's the son of the king, although he was, he was illegitimate. So there you go. That's Carl's London fact for the day. <laughs> it's a very, it's a very posh sounding name, and and that's yeah. I have to say, I I find, feel very sorry for him because I mean his history is is so pathetic. I mean, he's a gambling addict. I mean, we yeah. call, they didn't call it an addiction back then, but it pretty much was. I mean, he squandered his entire fortune on the turf, but he still can't leave it. I mean, he still is compulsively betting. He's still, you know, immersed in the world that destroyed him. Um, and, you know, he puts himself at, at great risk trying to, to get a, a, a tip in a, in a way that he knows will probably end badly. And he's, throw, he's throwing money around as well before he's yeah. even got that on. I mean, obviously, he's going to get a lot of money if um, 
if Silver Blaze doesn't win the Wessex Plate or the Wessex Cup, as, uh, as Watson calls it. Um, and it, it's a very, very dangerous job because obviously we, we see both, we see Capleton and we see um, uh, Kings Pyland, um, where there's somebody that just seems to be around just to basically to, to sort of horsewhip them if they, if they come any close enough. It's a very dangerous pastime he's got. And then the yeah. poor man gets arrested for murder. Well, it's a, it's a danger. I mean, the I mean, the horse world um, is a dangerous world. I mean, and that's actually true in reality as well as in as well as in fiction. So, I mean, I think that that one again, going back to atmosphere, I think that atmosphere of you know danger with the um, the savage dog, the savage moor, you know, um, places where people will you know that it's it's a world where where people will will kill for a tip or bribe for a tip, you know, a, a tip to make some money is. Um, I mean, it, it contributes to the atmosphere and sense of menace in the story in a way that's very effective. Uh, well, of course, there's, pl <coughs> excuse me, there's plenty of uh, Dick Francis novels around which uh, there's always a murder around the exactly. race course, uh, li literally week by week. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I mean, I'm not even sure how many novels Dick, Dick I'm, I'm actually not a huge, you know, despite loving horses and loving mysteries, I'm not a huge Dick Francis fan, but I mean, the, the his output is just legendary. I think he wrote a book about a year. <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, about, about every 20 minutes or so, he's got another one on the go. Yes. It involves a murder around a race course. I'm probably maligning the man horribly there, to be honest. Um, what is interesting, though, and I think this is a bit of a theme with all the stories, to be honest, once Holmes arrives at the murder scene, and I'm thinking Black Peter here in Boscombe Valley and what have you, is the second he's told, we've got this man, Mr. Holmes, forget it. He is 100% the guilty man. <laughs> Holmes immediately goes the other way. Well, the case against Fitzroy Simpson, though, really isn't strong. I mean, no, he, you know, he was there at the wrong place at the wrong time, but what he could possibly get to, you know, to take the horse out of the stable and, and hide it somewhere just to, to win a bet. I mean, it doesn't, it, you know, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, to be perfectly honest, given there, you know, he's probably bet on plenty other, uh, plenty of other races in his day. And even just the idea of going and putting on a bridle on a strange horse and leading him away into the the moors seems a bit odd. I mean, even like uh, like as a horse person, I can't even I can't help even wondering why not put a halter on. I mean, why do you even want to go and fiddle around with a bit in um in, in the horse's mouth if you don't know this? You know, if you don't if you don't even know the horse. Uh, and also, uh, as, as Holmes points out himself, why is he going to take the horse away? Yeah. Why not if he's going to injure it? Why not injure it just then or or um. Uh, and he's got no no record of injuring horses or anything like that. And it's the same with the gypsies. What, what are the gypsies going to do with the horse? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, I mean, the, it, it really does. It makes really makes very little sense. Or even if Fitzroy Simpson was going to injure Silver Blaze once he was discovered and once he was, you know, chased off, I mean, it would be a really bad time to do it immediately then, you know, I mean, you know, at least wait for another race or wait for another time or something like that. I mean, it doesn't, Gregory has shown a great deal of respect. Uh, I mean, the police case doesn't, if you, if you really sort of, parse it doesn't seem to hold a great deal of water uh, versus the Bo versus the Boscombe Valley mystery which I have to say I think the case against the you know accused man seems far stronger yeah I, I, exactly I mean I, I just can't see how so for example if he'd wanted to injure the horse he's the only stranger seen 
in a place where there are no strangers whatsoever. Um, in front of two witnesses, he's tried. He's looked at looked at the horse, and then if the horse went suddenly lame, I think they'd find the guilty man there quite quickly. There's not much in it for Fitzroy Simpson that he'd get a bit of cash, but he'd be in jail in about half an hour. Exactly. I, I think that's um, that that's unusual, and, and of course Holmes, once he works out the significance of the curried mutton, um, sits on his own in <laughs> like like him just sitting on his own, looking vaguely stunned. But he's obviously just worked out how stupid he's been not to have seen that immediately. That um, obviously Simpson couldn't have poisoned Ned. Um, who obviously he's been given some sort of is it powdered opium, I think it is, um, beforehand. I love the curry button detail, though. I mean, every now I and whenever, so I, whenever I have curry, I always think of that, actually. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself in a stupor the next morning and sleeping heavily? <laughs> is there something we should know? <laughs> Well, actually, I don't, but I know that some curries do have that effect, at least. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 they do. They Without do sort of, opium, even. They do, they do sort of leave you sort of, uh, <laughs> yes. well, leave me sort of mostly stupefied, I should say. Um, there's a few little facts in this story as well. Again, I, I, I bow, as I always do in the show, to, to Leslie Klinger and his amazing research. Um, Lord Backwater gets another mention. Um, now, he's been in the, uh, the canon before. We've already done um, uh, The Noble Bachelor. <laughs> Um, he's mentioned in there. Apparently, he's mentioned in the empty house because he's one of the debtors to um, Sebastian Moran. Um, and uh, uh, and sorry, Ronald Adair, who's, who's the murder party, isn't that as well? And I think I, I might have got this right, John. Do, do you know this? Isn't he the man in the Mazarin Stone? I think he's mentioned in that too. I mean, it's a fantastic name, so I can definitely see what, and, and Doyle certainly is not oh, above, I the same. above Absolutely. recycling names. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm having a look here. I can't see him mentioned in anything. I, see, the I thought he was mentioned in Mazarin Stone. Yeah. Um... Who's, the, who's the man who goes to, to see Holmes and sort of is, is obviously because he's quite rich, he's, he's incredibly rude to him. In Mazarin Stone? Let me, let me find out now one more. Uh, as you can tell, I, I do everything I can to avoid looking at anything to, with the words Mazarin Stone in it. It's it's certainly not a favorite story of mine, so I, I can't I can't say that I have like that name on you know the, the tip of my tongue. But, but, but you know what questions going on later on in the show, don't you? It's the way oh, it's of course, ask I'm, I'm well prepared. <laughs> One thing we haven't discussed because I've left ahead slightly is um, the famous deduction of Holmes and the speed of the train. Um, I haven't been observing the quarter mile posts. Not neither have I, but these posts are sixty mile, sixty yards apart, and the and the the the, the, um, the calculation is a simple one. Um, no, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, I mean, I have to say, just in terms of like a sentence memory, my I'm I'm very much a liberal arts person, but my father is an engineer, and I can't tell you how many conversations we've had like that, where he'll you'll say you know, he'll come up with some calculation off the top of his head, and I'll just be staring at him blankly, just trying not to look as dim as possible. <laughs> well, again, the essay I read on it last night, somebody said that. Um, for him to calculate that, he's got to count them every 2.2 seconds. Because that's if they're going at 53 miles an hour. And another a man said about, um, uh, I think it was a man, I should say, um, that um, uh, 53 miles an hour is in, still still in those days, it'll still be incredibly slow. It's got to be going significantly faster than that. Um, but I just like the fact that it's the, it's the first, we've got to look at it in, in its context, it's the first story of the new collection. Adventures has got has gone mad, he sold you know, millions with that. And it's the first, it's the first deduction, it's the first big show off. And I think it's a beauty, it really is, because no one could be bothered to prove it. 
Um, Watson doesn't care. Exactly. And I I would definitely be on Team Watson with this one whenever yeah. you know, someone you know, busts out with, with, with a fact like that. I, I, I would just say straight away, yeah, that sounds good enough to me, Sherlock. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy with that. God, you're a genius. Uh, <laughs> let's move on. Okay. A couple of minutes, Carl, but uh, Lord Cantlemere is the one. Oh, Cantlemere, that's it. Damn it. Mm-hmm. I'm furious with myself, John. Another great name, though, by on, on another great name for an aristocrat, though. Another nice, you know, Do- you posh, over-the-top sounding name. Doyle was good at names, I think. I think that's oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. And you already know what Lord Cantlemere looks like. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got the word pompous written on his forehead. You can just tell. Yes. Straight away. Um, uh, so they obviously they go to the house and um, they go and look at the body and I. One thing that uh, that Dull does really well is I, I I read it again yesterday and the big big clue in the whole thing I think is the um, the William Derbyshire bill in the pocket mm-hmm. Straker's pocket for for a start I don't want to know what condition Straker's body is in at this point because it's at least I, a week I I can't imagine well I mean hopefully he is buried and you know been taken care of I'm not sure how they could but <laughs> yes um... <laughs> I mean, like they just stuck him on a table. I guess oh, so. I mean, one would have hoped that something had been done to, you know, treat the body decently after all that time. Hmm. But but what I've really about that is is the way Doyle he gives you the big the big clue and then he doesn't mention it again. He gets over it within like three sentences. And it's the well, Holmes does straight. have that whole that very strange moment where he um, mentions the, the the dress to. Um, oh, the Plymouth, yeah, the, the, the actually, in Plymouth, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's so that's so deftly done, just because you know Holmes is onto something here, and um, and it's dressed up as comedy, obviously, because it is such a bizarre question. Like Holmes is going to start swanning around Plymouth garden parties, yes. um, and he very rarely leaves his own couch. You know, that's, yes, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's a big thing. But I also have another question to ask you because we had a chat last night, you and I, about um, uh, about how Straker was killed, and you said the you made a very very good point that. Um, the police might notice the difference between someone being hit with um with a walking stick and being kicked in the head by a horse. Why doesn't Holmes notice it? I mean, I would just assume that it's because of the forensics. You know, I mean, as you said, it's been quite some time since you know the man has been yeah, dead. Probably. So, I mean, I I give Holmes actually a pass on that one, but I don't necessarily get the local police to pass on that one. To be perfectly honest, I mean, because you would hope that you know with a fresh body that there would be at least some sign of the difference between someone being kicked in the head in the head versus being clubbed on you know with a with a uh, a heavy leaded walking stick. Um, I, I have to admit, I mean, I don't know enough about forensics myself to make a definitive statement on that. Um, but, you know, it, it does seem like there that, that there would be some difference in terms of the way that the, the force would be applied. I think there's got to be a bit of a difference in size, though. There has to be, surely. Size, I mean, I, I don't think, then again, was it, was, it, was, was it one that they think Fitzroy Simpson hit him once? Clearly not. That's the thing. They, they say, say they... Because they... Because they say several times, exactly. They say several times okay. in, the, in the description, but um, presumably Silver Blaze only kicked uh, Straker once because, I mean, he didn't, you know, <laughs> the horse didn't hang around, you know, kicking the man several times. I mean, presumably it was just a, you know, he kicked out, you know, he hit Straker yeah, in exactly yeah. the wrong place yeah, and then yeah. the horse ran off. Not, not, not unless that's a very, very evil horse. 
No, I thought not, <laughs> not not necessarily. I mean, the horses. I mean, horses are prey animals, and they can be easily startled by by anything. Um, I mean, actually, quite recently, um, just to give you an idea that even a very experienced horseman can be, you know, severely injured on the ground by a horse. Um, there's an adventurer in the U.S. called uh, Buck uh, Davidson, um, who's, you know, ridden at the five-star level on number a number of occasions, um, and he was uh, kicked in the face, and he actually, I mean, his, his face was fractured um, just by trailering a young horse, um, and he just said he was in the wrong place, the wrong time and unfortunately got you know you know you know very severely injured and missed a number of competitions because of that i think that's also why a lot of people are scared of horses as well aren't they because you know that you don't know when they're going to get easily spooked and 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 you know and, and kick out at anything in particular i'm not a massive i don't really like going quite close to them uh, not that that happens much where i live to be honest as well there's not many, not many horses around here to be honest um um we do a little segment on the show every week, every, sorry, every show um, called Watson Watch. And this is a big one. John, Watson does something. Yes. It's huge. He does several things, actually. He's, he very, on the, he he's very on the mark, this, this, this he identifi- story. He identifies the, the, uh, the knife, and it's crucial. And he also saves Holmes a walk, actually, because remember, Holmes is... is uh, hyper-focused as ever on the the path and Watson says look Holmes if you notice it's leading back you know in the other direction yeah he he also so. debunks the, the Fitzroy Simpson theory so Holmes doesn't have to um yes as well um mm-hmm. is this the start of the intelligent Watson perhaps? I think I think he's finally got he's he's um um he's he's finally in grown-up trousers Yes. He's, he's not the apprentice anymore. He's finally working on things as well. And and the cataract knife. I love the fact that it's 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 his world, and he can say, no, do you know what that is? This does this. I mean, the only downside with that is, and it's a very very downside apparently, is is that the cataract knife wouldn't work because the horse's tendons are far too thick for it to cut. But let's not bother looking at that for a minute. Um, I just really like the fact that Watson says, oh, do you know what this is? This does this. And again, they don't they don't go the whole hog of drawing the conclusion. They just leave it there for you. It's just a sort of have this as well, you know, as, as in the, the bill as well with uh, and the conversation with Mrs. Straker. It's just always thro- all thrown there. And if you don't get to the end of it, don't worry, he'll do it for you. But this one, I think, is one is far too complicated. But I really like the fact that you found him. This is also the site where um, it's one of my favorite things ever. Where um, Something like Gregory says, like you know, I, I was, I was, I do, I wouldn't have saw that uh, that that Vesta, that match at all. And Mahomes says, well, you, yes. you wouldn't do because I was looking for it. Oh he yes, that is a great moment. That's mm-hmm. lovely. That that's such a nice thing. Um, I mean, the cataract knife again. It's one of those things that, I and mean, the story is just so brilliant and flows so beautifully. You don't really think about it too hard when you're actually actually reading it, but. Why would a horse trainer have a cataract knife? I mean, that's such an odd thing to have on hand. You know, I mean, I can't. It's 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 not even like one of those like sort of weird, you know, all, you know, uh, things like a like a like a corkscrew or something like that that might you know find its way into your pocket. A cataract knife, you know, it's. And it keeps I it on the bedroom cable as well. Yes. Like like you do. How, I was going to ask um, as a, as a horse person yourself, how many cataract knives do you have about you at the moment? <laughs> I must confess that's something I could not even identify by sight. No, I not either. <laughs> yes. 
John, John, much call for the cataract knife in Swansea? Um, I, I don't actually know what a cataract knife looks like, but when I watched oh. the, um, uh, the the Jeremy Brett version last night, the knife they held up looked like a, like a normal knife you use for crafts, like from hobby crafts. So I don't know okay. if it's a similar design or something, or if just they just decided, oh, we need a knife. For that. Oh, this looks like it'll do when they're the props to it. Can we ask one of our listeners to send us photos on Twitter, please, at Adler2 um, of yes. a cataract knife, if you know anything about this at all. Um, yes, but it, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely little scene. that I really like that. Um, I don't always find, I found this as well with the barrel coronet, that I don't always find description of footprints really, really exciting. So I was really pleased that they did this because I knew the footprint thing was going to come because it had to be. <laughs> To, to be where they were. So, so they head off towards Capleton. Um, he sends uh, Gregory and uh, Colonel Ross on their way. Um, and I, I, I love the scene at, um, at Capleton where they, they, they meet they meet a sort of just a staff member first who tells them, you know, that they, they very, very kindly says, um, uh, you know, you probably want to get away from here because, you know, yeah, he's, he's, he will be up at five in the morning, but, you know, you probably, he doesn't really like people like you. Um, but I really... There's a really interesting bit where the, that same man says, you know, I can't be seen to touch a coin <laughs> if you want to pay me. But then he says, we well, can do it later if you like. I laughed yes. out loud at that. I thought that was really yes. funny. I, I do want some money, but, you know, no, no. how dare you give me money? But I do want some. Oh, the whole the, the whole encounter is just so, um, it, it, I mean, it's both hilarious and brilliant. And uh, may I say, you know, I mean, having watched the Granada recently in preparation for this too, I mean, even more brilliant and perhaps even funnier in the uh, the actual dramatization because we get the whole behind the scenes uh, yeah. wrangling between Holmes and Silas Brown. But I, I think it works better in the actual story because Brown is very sort of, you know, cantankerous and... Uh, you know, I'll do what I want. Who the hell are you to come and talk me this? And then one tiny whisper later, and suddenly he's a little child. Um, and, you know, what once they go away for a little chat. I don't know what Watson's doing, but I, I'd love to know what Watson's doing while all that's going on, by the way. Because they have a little private chat, and Watson's not allowed to go in if you don't quite understand. But it looks it's good for the story, obviously. Um, and, then, and then Brown is just... Um, but my question about Silas Brown, Mary, I don't know if you can answer this, is what, what was he thinking? Where else would the horse be? Well, originally, according to Holmes, and even looking at the footprints, he was thinking of leading the horse back, you know, but then he got, he, you know, he started thinking a little bit too much and uh, decided to uh, take advantage of the situation. I agree with you. It's a, it's certainly a foolish thing to do, but it almost worked. So, I mean, crime almost did pay. Yeah, I, I suppose there's, there's, you know, he, he did, they did the painting of the horse and everything, but I mean... You've got to look at Gregory here as well. Gregory does say that I did search everywhere and I couldn't find the horse anyway, so it did work to that extent. But, you know, there's a horse missing and um, but there's another stable nearby. Yes. I can't, I can't, I can't work out where he'd be. No. <laughs> well, it just goes to show you how unhorsey both uh, the inspector and his men are. Um, I have to say I find it this sort of that moment particularly funny because, um, you know, I, I don't own a horse or horses, but I do have friends who own multiple horses. And there's always a joke that you want to buy a, a bay horse because, you know, your husband won't notice if there's just another bay horse in another field of bay horses. I mean, there's like this joke that uh, non-horse people can't tell, you know, one horse from another unless there's chrome or significant size or color involved. 
Yeah, um, me. And actually, I, I love the fact that even though Doyle wasn't a, a racing man or a horseman, the story kind of plays upon you know that fact. And even Colonel Ross can't tell the difference. I mean, and and that I, again I think shows Who's that, that something. <laughs> that, that says something about him is I think he's more of an owner type person. I mean, he's got well, there's money. only four horses, aren't there? There's only four horses in the entire racing stable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's not it's not as if he's got twenty or thirty on the go. I don't know how these things work, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah, I do find it quite strange that Ross doesn't even recognise it, and it's his own horse. And I mean. Surely, I know, like, you know, there's paint and dye and what have you, but surely the character, I don't know, would you be able to tell a difference if if a horse you see every day is suddenly a different colour? Would you recognise the horse? I don't know. Well, I think I think it says a lot about how who Ross, though, is is as a person and his relationship with his stable and, um, and his horses. I mean, he... Without the chrome, he can't even spot his own horse, and he didn't know yeah. all the, the dirtiness that Stryker was up to behind his back. So, I mean, to me, actually, if I if I want to probably read maybe a little bit more into the story than perhaps even Dole, Dole intended, this seems to be a man who um, who has money, but not necessarily knowledge, um, and as a result is being perhaps taken advantage of the, the real horse people um, in his employ. And that's a very common tension, I think, in yeah. the horse world in general, because, I mean, horses are very expensive, as I'm sure, even if you're not horse people, you know that horses are expensive and it's even more expensive to compete horses. But the people with the money aren't necessarily the people with horse knowledge. Um, no, of course a lot not, of times, no. A lot of times people with the knowledge and without the money have a lot of contempt and anger for the rich people who own the horses. And I think that we see a little bit of that, of Straker venting that, you know, contempt um, against his employer in his actions as well. There's also there's also a tiny hint about this as well, because Holmes describes Ross as the lucky owner of Silver Blaze. Mm -hmm. he exactly. Uses, he, he uses the word lucky more than anything else. It's complete luck that this man... It's got a horse of such, like, you know, overwhelming talent. And that, that, that's, that's interesting. Like it's a small, it's a very small operation. I mean, this isn't someone with, like, a great depth of field of horses or experience with horses. So he did kind of, you know, get very lucky. And, and that might be another reason why Silas Brown feels justified in trying to hide Silver Blaze. I mean, you know, he's worked hard all of his life as a horseman, and yet he doesn't have like the same quality as this guy, this, this, this upstart, this guy who can't even tell if it's his own horse or not, if he doesn't, if the horse doesn't have a big fat Silver Blaze on his face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All he's got, all he's got is Desbra. Yeah, who's a good horse, but yeah, exactly. Yeah, she's got second in the plates. So, you know, he's, um, I think he finished second anyway. Um, yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I like the fact. I'm sort of with Silas Brown there. I think he's, he's, not, the, he's not the fastest uh, thing on two legs, is he? But uh, um, can I, I get, like that. Can I Sorry, Is it just me, or is a trainer and three grooms a lot of staff for four horses? That's I thought that. You know, staff the horse. I I don't know. I mean, for race horses, I I mean, again, I, I I don't know. I mean, it's hard to you know pass judgment on stable management practices back in the you know the nineteenth century. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, it, I assume I, I my guess too would be a bit is probably it is a bit more difficult without a lot of the modern conveniences and technology that you know that we have i mean taking care of horses is is very hard work you know no matter what 
Um, though I have to say, I do have friends who, again, I mean, I'm not a professional horse person. I just love horses and ride, but I do have friends who are, you know, who have worked as pros and stables, often with frighteningly little help with frighteningly large amounts of horses. So I'm sure they would love that. I'm sure you would have many volunteers to work in that situation, you know, with, with you know, the, that few horses and that much help. It, it does strike me a bit. Uh, there's a, there's a, um, uh, a Peter Cook uh, sketch. Uh, I think it, it, I think in, in the, the guise of E.L. Wistie, one of his characters, where he says something like, I bought a couple of bees to see if I could get a swarm going. Yes. Um, a man with four horses is immediately owns racing stables and everything. And it sounds like he's, about, he's just started out. And mm-hmm. he's just, just got the four at the moment, but he's hoping to get a few more in. But I did think that as well. It's, you know, to say he owns the, 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 the most successful horse in 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 the kingdom at the time he's only got another three i thought i thought that was quite strange but but of course he's, he's got to use the um the loneliness of the environment isn't he he doesn't want to have a huge you know massive i can't think what the expression would be huge, basically a huge sort of massive silo stable you know going on i suppose it's got to be get, get quite relatively quiet even though he has chose to have his racing stables right next to the only man who can steal his horses um, well, it's- that's like a bit of a hobby for him. I mean, I guess he must have had the stables for a while because he does say that Striker used to be his jockey. Um, and yes. then he got like, head weight. So he must have Before had- he got fat, basically. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's, uh, uh, this is also the scene um, where he goes he goes and sees Colonel Ross again and Gregory. And, um, and even Watson is baffled when he says, right, we're going back to London by the midnight train. Um, he does this again, obviously, in things like the Naval Treaty. Like he says, you know, he's, he changes his mind at the last minute and says he's going home, but he doesn't. Um, he, he does go home, but it, it's it's the big line about, firstly, there's the sheep, um, which I love that little detail. Um, is there anything be wrong with the sheep? Um, uh, yeah, there's not much you can, but some of them have gone lame. And, of course, the, the big line, the, the, the big line, which is the curious incident of dog in the nighttime. Um, it's called a negative in, in, inference, apparently. But um, it's such yeah. a beautiful line, that. Yeah, it's such a wonderful line. Um, and something, it does seem like a very Holmesian thing to, to notice that. Um, and, and it's why, and it's also, by the way, just a wonderful book and also a wonderful yeah. show. I, I, I saw it um, a, a number of years ago and I'm, it's... You know, it, it, it's very, it's, it's the, um, the Curious Incident book, I think, in, in, in some ways is very true to the, the spirit of, of Holmes in its own sort of odd way. There's lots of references to Sherlock in the story. I haven't read the book, to be honest, but I know that many people have had, because I, I don't know if you had, the, if either of you had to do this, but when the book came out, I found myself explaining the title <laughs> to anyone who would listen. And no one was interested, by the way, not in the slightest bit interested where the quote comes from. But... Oh, uh, yeah, but uh, I found something. Do you know where that's from? And then I had to explain about mm-hmm. sheep going lame, which may sound a bit strange for people, obviously. Um, yeah. I, I can imagine. Um, so they go back to London, uh, and um, this, I think, is where the controversy really kicks in. Um, I know this is one of the, the, the biggest um, controversy about this entire story, in fact. I don't think he does, but does Holmes gamble on inside knowledge? He doesn't. Look, if you look in the text, he gambles on the, the race. next horse. The yeah. Next. Yes. 
Because that would be unethical for him to take advantage of that, uh, knowing that. I, I mean, the Silver Blaze is still running as Silver Blaze, but yeah. presumably, um, if the horse was running and looked different, there would be some doubt. And Holmes would have certain knowledge that this was actually Silver Blaze when he placed his money on the horse. So um, that would be unethical of him to um to bet on the race of course there's absolutely no way that a horse that didn't have the the registered markings could race silver blaze so i i mean the the incident as doyle describes it is you know uh, as he himself admitted later on problematic Mm -hmm. yeah because because i think if i was one of the officials i'd be thinking so that horse that doesn't look like silver blaze that's silver blaze is it yeah just let it run Okay. And the horse is called Silver Blaze, you know. To, to like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the interesting thing is, look, the Granada version fixes it. Exactly. Um, yeah, yeah they, they, they have Jeremy Brett, you know, take the sponge to Silver Blaze before the race. And I forget how many, you know, Sherlock Holmes stories end, you know, by Jeremy Brett taking a sponge to something. In the, <laughs> yes. There's a couple, isn't there? <laughs> yes. Twisted lip, yeah. And it's a it's a wonderful moment. I actually prefer the Granada spin on it as well, because then Holmes can bet on the race because, I mean, you know, he's operating with the same level of knowledge as everyone else, all the other betters. Um, so you do get that, that, that moment of drama of him sort of, you know, cheering the silver blaze on. I, I did, I, I, again, I said in the agenda that I said there's no filler here at all. Even washing a horse is a dramatic event. Yes. And I think that's fantastic. I just don't see how they let the horse run in the first place. I understand how... <sighs> I, I think he's had a bet. I don't think he let that go. I mean, Watson once. Watson, as, as we learned in Shoshkabel Place, you know, spends half his money off his half his walk engine on gambling. If it, Watson would be all over that. <laughs> that's, that's another thing I was thinking when reading this as well, and comparing to the Granada version. That, you know, the Granada version has got references to Watson liking a flutter. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. The actual short story doesn't have any references to it. So I think mean, maybe Doyle hadn't decided that part of Watson's character, because surely there'd be something um, in the story if it was there in the character at the time. But he is always yeah. poor, isn't he? Watson is always quite poor. Not really. I mean, he's sort of poor until the uh, royalties from the the stories that he's been writing yeah. about his friends start pouring in, and Holmes gets a bit grumpy about that, um, since presumably his monograph on cigarette ash isn't quite flying <laughs> off the shelves <laughs> in the same way as Watson's short stories. Sold out first day, first edition, all gone. Yes. My, mon- my monograph on 153 different types of whatever. Yes. <laughs> I think. Um, the, the, the other problem with this as well, and we, again, we had a chat about this, Mary, and I know you don't care, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. John, I don't know if you want to answer this. If, Stry- if Stryker is holding the match, um, sorry, if he's holding a cravat and a knife, how does he strike the match? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was... The whole thing of, you know, Stryker being an experienced person around horses, would he, you know... He isn't, is he? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, approach, you know, approaching a horse, you know, doing something sudden like that. You'd think he'd, I don't know, maybe um, drug the horse first. Surely they must have some access to things like that in the stable, you know, in case they need to do something, you know, some kind of operation on the horse or something, because... But he's also... Well, he's also I, I, I have to say, though, I mean, I, you know, again, I'm not, I mean, I don't know as much about 19th century um, 
you know, horse doctoring in terms of you know drugging a horse or whatever. Well, no, this but, is I mean, why a drug you're would on. take some time. A drug would take some time. <laughs> a drug would take some time, though. Probably, first of all, to take effect. And if the drug was, um, you know, severe enough and strong enough, I mean, it would be pretty obvious that the horse has been been tampered with the the next morning if he was if he was dopey. So um, I don't think necessarily that would be. Uh, I, I don't think necessarily that would be obvious. Um, and as I said, I mean, even very experienced horse people have gotten, you know, severely injured on the ground. So I'm not too, you know, too fussed with that. And as a non-smoker, I've seen smokers, you know, light their cigarettes in, you know, <laughs> in the most extraordinary of circumstances, like in a gale, in a rainstorm. If they need that nicotine fix, they can, you know, they can do it in a, in a, in a trice. And Straker and Straker is a is a smoker. Um, and I think just people of that era are probably much more accustomed to lighting matches than we are. I mean, like. You know, I'm I'm so clumsy. If if I had to light a match in broad daylight, you know, under the best of circumstances, it would probably take me half an hour. You know, <laughs> but, but I'm not a smoker, so you know, there you go. Well, also, is it, I mean, again, it could be completely wrong here, but um, wouldn't he spend more time with the horse than anybody else? I suppose Ned would, wouldn't he? Because Ned has to look after him when they're not working, as it were. Because couldn't he just did he have to leave the horse out to do this? Well, I mean, I guess he doesn't want to be, he, I guess he was afraid of, you know, being spotted by anyone. I mean, yeah. it does seem a bit odd to, that he has to take the horse that far, that far away, though. I mean, you, you think that he just could just sort of take it, you know, out to the sheep field or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> Holmes, Holmes, Holmes explains it in the story by saying that the horse would surely, you know, react loudly and, you know, would wake everyone. Um but yeah, I just drug the other, the other, the other grooms then. Um. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I mean, I think that's a, that's a fair thing to say, and and it's also fair to say too that, um, you know, just because someone's committing a crime doesn't mean they always choose the best or most intelligent way of committing that crime. You know, again, I mean, again, he's not the brightest man, is he? I mean, yeah. ca carrying around a bill which. Uh, around in the pocket while, while talking to his wife, you know, you don't want that to fall out, uh, out, 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 out of his pockets at the same time as well. Um, I also wonder if um, Mr. Straken knew. Yeah, that's the thing. That I, it, it does surprise mm. me again to go back to the police forensics, why they don't um, question her about that bill. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, if I was a, um, you know, just throwing my bias in, I'd, if I didn't have Holmes's knowledge and foresight, one thing that I would think of is, you know, here's this evidence that this man um, bought a dress for a woman. You know, maybe it's an angry husband who came after him or something like yeah. that. And she knows as well. She says, oh, we often get his mail delivered here. Yeah. Why? <laughs> yes. Yeah, you think the police would check up on it at least, you know? I think you'd have a look at that, yeah. By it, but the police, you know, should have thought, hang on. Because yeah. that's always the most obvious thing. I mean, if someone is, you know, killed, is it a crime of passion? You know, were they dallying with, you know, someone else's spouse? Yeah, that's quite strange. Um, I've got one last question, because obviously we're, we're at the end of the drama, as it were. Um, and this is the stupidest question you'll ever be asked. Obviously, if an animal, if a dog attacks a human being, the dog can be killed. Would Silver Blaze be, um, I was going to say punished, but you can't punish a horse, can you? They don't even know what they've done. 
isn't that a wonderful moment when the, he turns around and he's like, you know, the, the murderer is right here. Yes, um, fantastic. Everyone's like, oh, who could it be? And then he turns around, it's the horse, you know, and he is, you know, innocent of his crime because he was acting solely in self-defense. Yeah. I suppose on one hand is, you know, one, you know, defense, you know, first and foremost. But but second of all, I think, sadly, it is something that just horses do. Um, I mean, again, this is going to be I hate to end. I'm hoping this won't end on too grim a note. But, um, you know, uh, in, for instance, in three day eventing, which is one of the most dangerous, you know, horse sports um, there there is. And for that matter, horse racing is very dangerous. I mean, people, you know, have been killed riding horses and the horses certainly are not you know put down in punishment it just it's just what horses do and um horses have severely injured people but again it's it is one of the risks of you know dealing with horses um it's one of the reasons why i tend to stick to very you know safe and <laughs> plucky type horses you know since i'm you know a middle-aged woman and i break very easily um but if you're <laughs> dealing with if you're dealing with horses and especially if you're dealing with, you know, young competition horses, you know, it's, 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 it's a constant risk. Yeah. So, so, so basically they're not sent off to horse court no, or, exactly. or, or not arrested. Anything no. you name will be taken against you, that sort of thing. Exactly. Okay. Mm -hmm. John, we might cut that. <laughs> that's, a, that's the stupidest question I've ever asked. That, I think that needs to be kept in any. Oh, we're doing that. oh, we're definitely keeping it in. Absolutely. <laughs> I like the idea of horse court, though. Um, that's fantastic. <laughs> thank you, thank you so much for coming on, Mary. Um, you know what the, the big question is going to be next? You've oh, just yeah. done. You've just covered a story that you absolutely. I'm going to change the rules on this. Actually, that you absolutely love. If you were asked to come on again, and we are going to ask you to come on again, obviously, to do a story that you don't like, and you're not allowed to do the Mazarin Stone. <laughs> Which one would it be? By the way, you, you are on the panel for the Mazaran Stone as well, because we're, John and I are thinking of getting 47 people on that show. <laughs> oh, I would love to, I, I would love to be in it, but I would have to, to reread it, because I have to admit, I, I tend to reread only stories that I really, really like. So I haven't reread the Mazarin Stone in a while. But I, the story that actually that I dislike perhaps even more than the Mazarin Stone is The Three Gables. Yeah, I, I, I'm, agree. I'm with you on that as well. That's definitely, that's definitely, I was going to say, up there. It's definitely down there. I mean, first of all, it's just a bad story. It's not very yeah. interesting. The prose is very wooden. It doesn't even have, you know, a great opening. And even, and, and what really just makes me cringe is just the racism in it. Um, because, I mean, first of all, it's just awful. Oh, God, yeah. It, it makes me ashamed of, of Doyle because, I mean, he shows such sensitivity and humanity to all people and, and all creatures in most of his stories. And I, I, you know, I don't know why he picked up this like lazy, you know, um, racist description to, to put in one of his stories. And it hurts even more because, I mean, Doyle, by and large, I mean, he writes in Watson's voice and he writes in the first person. Yeah. So not only is it a racist story, but he's putting racism in the mouth of one of the most gentle and generous and you know wonderful characters in all of literature he's our friends watson is our friend yes he's us he's our friend yeah, he likes us yeah we yeah. get on um you know so and and you know it hurts me to even think also of a person who's a sherlockian and a person of color reading that story to have to see that you know so and that that's why even more than mazarin stone that's why i hate the three gables it, it is a horror yeah there's it is a horrible um uh, when you have to read books like that, I think Love, Lovecraft is quite similar as well. There's a few things in there which aren't particularly great, and even P.G. Woodhouse, who I absolutely adore, but there's a there's a 
Um, I can't remember which Jeeves story it is, but um, he refers to a black and white minstrel show and he uses the N-word throughout. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think... Alex Bertie Wooster, who's lovable. It's really horrible. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, with Lovecraft, though, I think his, I mean, sadly, his racial attitudes are so embedded in, in exactly, all of his, yeah. exactly. his work. It's, it's, you know, you're more, you're more steel for it. But with something like Doyle or or Woodhouse, you know, I mean, who are just like such, create such lovable and and warm and and friendly worlds to escape in. It's it's much harsher and more yeah. more uncomfortable to see. Well, thank you for coming on to the show. We're definitely going to bring okay. you back for. Um, uh for the three gables you and i will sit through that together and cringe um, <laughs> well thank you and, and thank you for having me i'll have to i'll have to reread it to to bone up again uh bone up on it since as i i tend to stick with the ones i love rather than the ones that i hate to, to read reread constantly can you remind can you remind people um of where they can read your materials and books and what have you Oh, well, um, my books are available on Amazon.com. Uh, um, my name is Mary Pagonis, um, and you can find me when you, I'm sure when you post the episode on, on Twitter, um, that you can find a link to, to my work by just, you know, clicking on my, my profile. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for coming on. John and I have to have a bit of discussion about the next um, story, because it's the cardboard box, or is it? Because he didn't, um, <coughs> um, sorry, Excuse me, Doyle didn't um, uh, have it in the early editions. He, put, he published it later. So we're going to have a chat about that. But in the meantime, Mary, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for writing every single thing we didn't know about horses, and correcting okay. us on so many things. And um, we look forward to having you on again soon. Okay, thank you very much. I would like to thank our hosts at Rippercast, as well as producers Jonathan Mengus and John Rees. A special thank you too to Andrew Firth, who created both the graphics and the theme music. You can contact us on Twitter at Adler to Amberley. Thank you for listening. <laughs>